Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the new season of the Krause House podcast. We're doing things a little differently, if you can't tell. Commodore, there's actually a new guest here. Who you got there? You're on mute, bud. <laughs> oh, dude. Literally out of the gates on mute. Episode one, season two. Kind of looks like a dead dog, which he's not. He's, he's Frank, mini Australian shepherd, little puppy guy, sleeping in my arms. So I guess he's a co-host, technically. Technically co-host, and let's hope he has better takes than you. I, I doubt it. <laughs> so give a little primer on the new format. We're obviously leaning into video a little bit more. We got some awesome feedback from the community. Commodore and I have talked about it. I think we're going to also change up a little bit of the format, a little bit more structure. You guys are tired of hearing us just riffing and rambling. We're going to focus a little bit more on kind of the sports business side of things. That seems to be some of the most interesting content that we've produced in the past. We're going to have some fun. We got some more irreverent sections, some hot takes, predictions, redrafts. So stay tuned for that. But in general, we're trying out this new format, new season, episode one. You ready to kick things off? Yeah, dude, let's do it. I'm excited for this new format. I think folks will really like let's it. Let's try it. And it's, it's a process. We're going to see, we're going to be making some changes, but let's make it happen. Let's do it. So we're going to start off with some news. This one's near and dear to us particularly, but NCAA football is returning. You want to share a little bit about the news from the EA sports world? Yeah, dude. I mean, I think it's really exciting as a gamer, or at least a gamer back in the early 2000s. I feel like there's a little fun anecdote before we dive into it, which is Flex's favorite game, I think, growing up was NCAA football. My, I'm getting a head nod here. Mine was Madden. And we would hang out like once a year. So like friends, but the long distance. So we'd hang out like once a year and we'd have like a big showdown once a year. And funny enough in our big showdown, I think at our peak in both games, I beat you in NCAA, you beat me in Madden. And if I recall correctly, you always rocked Texas. I always rocked Maryland, which I also makes me think like, how did I beat you with Maryland Terrapins over Texas, dude? I don't know, but you're right. So that was my game of choice. I was the local, unbeatable, untouchable guy in the neighborhood. And I did use Texas. I think it was the Vince Young year, if I'm not mistaken, which is cheating. So I don't want to hear it. Oh, I don't want to hear it from the comment section. But I had that triple option, lockdown, post corner, just unstoppable. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we played Madden first and I beat you, which was your game. And I remember yeah. thinking, hell yeah, there's no way I'm going to go 2-0 and today and there's no chance you beat me in NCAA. I remember I had the Ravens, if I'm not mistaken, and you had the Packers. And I remember we flipped on NCAA football. I'm just maybe playing down to my competition, aloof, not bringing my A game. I don't know, but I caught an L and I remember being so pissed. But it's weird. We basically beat each other at our own game, which was crazy. Yeah, it's, it's a good memory. But I think it wasn't that long after that. I don't remember the last NCAA football to come out. It was like 2011 or something around there. And so it's exciting for them to see, bring NCAA football back. But I think obviously the big thing that's changed here is the NIL. And so a lot of the things that are in the news are sort of this negotiation about how they're going to bring back the player's likeness. And it seems like the solution that they're currently landing on is that they're going to give every player who opts in uh, to their, you know, their NIL being part of the game, they'll pay them $500. I'm curious, is that a long-term solution? Is that a reasonable solution? Like, how do you think about that as the business side of that thing? Yeah, it's interesting. I just have so many questions on how they got to that decision. First of all, I think the most prime example was, I forgot the exact number, but I think Florida made roughly, I think over $150 million, somewhere in that range during Tebow's tenure as a Florida Gator. And he saw none of that. What does that mean for the future Tebow's of the world? Or like they still getting $500 all the way down to the walk-on punter? How do they justify that? It's obviously not worth it to the Tebow's, but very much worth it for some of the guys that are just on the roster. So I'm a little bit confused there. What does the roster look like? You have some actual names, some made up names, or maybe just the numbers. I have so many questions, not only how they arrived on that, but how it impacts the game itself. I think in general, it's a good step in the right direction and compensating those players. In a quick tangent, right? I remember the Ed O'Bannon story and him suing the NCAA and him seeing like him seeing himself, seeing his name, image, and likeness. 
he was blown away that they even made him a lefty. It was like that paradigm shift for gaming when it was actually starting to get detailed. And he did some napkin math and realized that they're making a ton of money and none of the players are seeing any of it. And end up suing the NCAA. And if I'm not mistaken, it was a class action. And the NCAA lost. That's a really powerful organization. I think that was resulted, that was the catalyst into some of these initial NIL conversations. And fast forward, I just still think $500, it just seems very haphazard. Yep. If you want in $500, if you don't, you can sit out. I would expect to be further along at this point, but I, I don't know. I have so many questions. Yeah. One thing I like, I was thinking about myself in that role. There's a world too, where one of the trends that we talk about is this idea of like you know, simulated immersion. And I think that one of the things we've seen with NBA 2K and FIFA, especially where the video game itself has been able to pull in fans. It's like all my friends play FIFA. I don't really know much about soccer. I don't know. I'm not very good at FIFA, but in order to kind of do that, I've learned how to play FIFA. And then that teaches you about the game. It gets me more excited to actually watch soccer. And right, there's just sort of this positive feedback loop. And I was wondering, and I'd be curious your take on this, is like, is there a certain benefit to making sure you're included in sort of these simulated, you know, digital spaces that then give you the opportunity that maybe you're this player. Remember there was this guy in like March Madness 2004 in high school, one of my friends, he would always play as Pacific. And it was like this white point guard, short little guy that could just shoot threes. And he would beat all these amazing teams of Pacific. And I'm imagining a world where that could then, in this algorithmic media world, which is another trend that we talk about, actually drive a ton of NIL money because the way that your character in a simulated world performs is perhaps maybe even better than the way that you perform in real life. And so it just got me thinking, like, are you leaving money on the table by not being in the game because you think you're more valuable than the 500, which you probably are, but are you losing something? I'm curious your take on that. Yeah. For a player that you've mentioned, it probably seems worth it, right? If you're the starting point guard at Pacific, $500 is $500. And then using your name and image, could that be a catalyst to get more Pacific fans or do something for you? Perhaps even get noticed as crazy as it is. I mean, odds are small there, but get an overseas contract because you blow up as this is this hidden gem in NCAA basketball. I think the biggest question again comes from those premier players, you know, those Heisman candidates, the Naismith candidates. I don't know what you do if you opt out. Like I said, here's another question. Is there any sort of resolution path, right? Like I could just see if you're a Heisman candidate type of player, right? And you opt out, what does that mean for EA? Do they go back to the negotiation table to try to get you in the game? Do they just say, okay, mm. sorry, we're moving on. It doesn't seem thought out because as I'm, if I'm reading it correctly, it, it sounds that simple. If you opt in, here's $500. If you opt out, sorry. So I just, I, there's just, there's so many open-ended parts to this that I'm just, I'm wondering what they do in certain situations. Yeah. And it feels like you could actually drive a bunch of metrics. I'm thinking of like the royalty challenges that Spotify has solved, where you could say, you know, however many times someone plays with this team and then whoever touches the ball the most during that game, like, you know, it's not an exact science, but like the quarterback touches the ball every time the running back, you know, like there's certain players, the most tackles, like you could sort of create this bounty system, which again is kind of crazy to say out loud, but that could be a way to get, you know, solve Tim Tebow getting, 20% of the total game, as opposed to just 500 as compared to the guy that's third string. That's interesting too. Some sort of metric value, data-driven way of doing it. A huge amount of touches, right? Running back touches, wide receiver touches. Cause you're right. Like you always find that, like that slot guy on some random team and just use it a bunch. If you could do it on a usage basis like that, obviously that's really sophisticated. And I think that does the job. I wasn't expecting something like that out the gates, but Hey, $500 in or out, it just seems sloppy, especially after losing a $40 million lawsuit to NIL. In their defense, yeah. right, if I'm going to take the other side, the NIL stuff, it's like I'm reading about a new rule every day. I'm reading about a team bending the rules around it. Like, I don't think they're fully fleshed out. It might be hard to determine who gets what. So they're just trying to keep it as simple as possible. But I think my takeaway here is that there will be changes coming to that structure. Maybe not in this game, as it's probably already in production, but maybe in future iterations of the franchise. What do you think? Yeah, I think like one thing I want to add is that NBA 2K, you know, you download the newest NBA 2K, you go into the custom rosters. You want to download 1992 NBA, like boom, it's done. 
And is it perfect? No. Or that, you know, the, to your, you were talking about like the clothes and the animation. It's like, it's close, right? But it's like, it's not perfect yeah. because you're not quite getting that NIL. But I mean, you want to download 1986, like 1992, 1999, 2004. Like these fans have created for the most part, generally mostly interesting enough rosters to play the entire game at. And so part of me was thinking too, is like, if you're NCAA, if I'm running that company, I'm thinking like, okay, let's offer everyone $500. There's going to be the official roster that we go. So maybe let's go, go back to the Tim Tebow era. Tim Tebow opts out. Okay, that's fine. Everyone's going to go download custom roster where some guy makes Tim Tebow for free because he just wants to emulate that. We don't pay that creator anything because it's a free product, which means we don't owe Tebow anything because there's no technical revenue. And so you switch from like a from a game to like a platform play. Now, obviously, you're probably going to catch a lawsuit and the courts will determine if that's a viable workaround or not. But that's where my mind was also going is like, maybe EAA just needs to think about, we get the licensing of the fight song, the stadium, the logos, that's what we're paying for. The players are sort of like, that's something that the, the custom rosters that will change in ebb and flow. We're just building a really great college football game engine. And then the community can go brand it. And I'm actually surprised that it hasn't existed as a top tier product yet. But, you know, I know these games are complicated. Yeah, I agree. It definitely solves their issues. I actually remember ordering a PlayStation 2 memory card off eBay with the rosters loaded on it. You know what I mean? So I remember yeah, that. So it's, it, it's certainly come a long way. These nephews don't, they don't know the no, pain. These young go to the custom roster, download a button. Dude, you are so right. I remember there was, yeah, you would have to go like on a forum and then find it'd be like, you know, like, like Ronnie's, Ronnie ZK's you know, yeah. rosters. And you're right, dude. It was like, sometimes you go and buy, oh man. Yeah. This guy had an eBay store and I just go up with a little <laughs> package with just a PlayStation 2 memory card in it. But dude, the rosters were nice. And then you loaded it. It has everybody with their stats and everything. It's great. It's fantastic. Dude, shout out to that yeah. guy. I want to I interview that yeah. guy. That's what a hustle. A value, a huge value add hustle. Let's move on. This one has been news, but we got another leg of the Triple Crown coming up. But Mage, the Kentucky Derby winner, actually has 391 shared owners. And Mage actually won the Kentucky Derby. Unfortunately, won't be competing for a full triple crown as he didn't win the next leg, but still pretty impressive. And so what I kind of want to get into is that it's the first very well-publicized. I remember seeing ESPN. It was all over the internet of kind of this Web2 fractional ownership through a platform called Commonwealth. That platform facilitates collective ownership. And it's really been interesting to see how some of these things have been applied. Obviously, as founding members of Krauss collective ownership is something we think about a lot. It's very interesting. It's a real world asset. What are your thoughts on this whole entire thing? Let's break this down all the way from Commonwealth collective ownership to it actually winning the Derby. We're seeing actually some interesting kind of jokes flying through in these threads about the upside in ownership. So let's dive in. Yeah, I mean, I think that Commonwealth, I, I don't know much about the platform, but I think this idea of building, you know, what we would probably call as like web two financial infrastructure products is really interesting. And I think that one insight that we have continued to beat the drum on that is I think a innovative idea is there's nothing really that precludes you from using the idea of an NFT to, you know, sort of allow list your way into a platform like Commonwealth, right? And I think that's something that we have to be more open-minded with our journey with the MBA and being fully compliant with what they would request from us. But that's this sort of strange space where I'm like, Sometimes the crypto degen side is so fixated on like, hey, the NFT actually 100% represents ownership. It cannot be transferred. It cannot be revoked. It can't be you know, all these things. And, and I love that for especially for certain types of DeFi projects and whatnot. But then I'm also like, but there's also this opportunity to really play around with the space in between and kind of we often sort of joke with ownership groups of like this web 2.1 or web 2.5 right like what, what are the intermediate steps and so i'm just excited to see something like commonwealth tap into that and i think it is part of a trend of saying these sports where it's really actually the league itself is really not a league at all it's really just a collection of individuals and i think you know golf has that pga obviously with live i think boxing has that 
UFC is an exception to that, but you can imagine MMA fighters. I think Jake Paul is starting to show that that raw star power can supersede it. And I think horse racing is a little bit like that, where, you know, there's a lot of different ownership models that can thrive in that way. So I'm excited to see just use cases, period, of fractional ownership that get people excited, regardless of the infrastructure that pulls it in. You mentioned the joke. I think I saw, so Mage was 15 to one underdog and dare I say under horse for that event. And some of the jokes were that the shares were originally debuted and sold at $50 a share. And the payout here was $94 a share. And so I think some of the jokes was like, hey, if you just would have picked that $50 and put them on to win at 15 to one, you would have made 800. I'm just like, do you think that's a fair take? I know it's a Twitter, you know, comment trolls joking around, but is that a fair take? Unless I'm missing something, it's apples to oranges. One is an investment versus kind of a one-off speculative thing, which is like... Totally. But also, I'm even having trouble understanding one is $50 a share in ownership. And what does it mean the payout was $94 per share? Is that winnings from... From that race, right? So I think your apples and oranges are a great analogy because he might win more races. He might stud other horses. He might, you know, exactly. sell his likeness. Exactly. Like there's, it's it's just one payout. Dude, I would buy some mage merch. Come on, yeah. There's it's a whole <laughs> it's a whole asset class yeah. that that can appreciate and should appreciate versus a bet. So I don't. Maybe there's just some haters or people poking fun. But yeah, I, give me the fifty dollars per share ownership any day of the week. So. Do you think the owners that were there and the celebration and hugs, it almost it reminded me of what you see when people win finals and championships. Like they were obviously going crazy. And what was really interesting about that moment was they normally do that with one or two owners that are hugging. And it was crazy to see dozens just going. It was actually quite awesome to watch. I've seen that clip a few times now. So let me ask you this. Because of the high profile nature of the win with Mage, do you see this start to permeate through the sports ecosystem? Are there more horses that get purchased through Commonwealth? Do we start to, dare I say, into teams, right? Like ownership all over the world. Is it more going to come from a Web 2.1 approach? Is it going to come top down from Web 3.0? Do you think this is a trend that is going to emerge across all sports and all asset classes? Yeah, I think one of the trends that we had outlined is I think this idea that traditional ownership structure is a bit of a middleman, right? And there are certain industries where middlemen are incredibly helpful. They're sort of like market makers, deal facilitators, and those markets have had a lot of staying power with a middleman style approach. And I think that sports and sort of sports organization and management of it has benefited greatly by having that. And I, when I think like taking a step back and just thinking about even like capitalism and the development of finance in the United States of America over the last, you know, 100, 200 years, it's like just to coordinate and take on the risk profile of the idea that a sport could be profitable in like a business is actually like a pretty crazy mind shift, right? If you think about like 1920, and you're like, I'm going to start a sports league and people are going to pay a bunch of money and they're going to like, it's like, I'm sure you could get someone like a group of local people be like, yeah, okay. Like, yeah, maybe our neighborhood would come and watch or these people will come and watch. But like, I don't think it was thought of as like a business as much of it was like a carnival or like a circus, right? It's like, yes, there's some sort of break even profitable kind of thing here. And then I think the only people that were sort of wild enough to like really start building and going after this and then thinking about how much society has changed in that time. Now it's obvious to us that like sports is a massive business. And so when I think about it across that long trend, I'm like, okay, well, traditional business ownership was really important for essentially entrepreneurs to take risk on funding a thing, a sport that they love just out of a pure passion project that they could hopefully monetize at least break even just to be involved. Like I love football. I love baseball. And I just, I want to be around it to now there's like these mega companies. And you and I talk a lot about this too, is like their billion dollar organizations often run like a small business because they are a small headcount. And so when I see that kind of transition and I think about that gap, my mind sort of wanders to like, well, was traditional ownership a stop gap to help take financial risk on, right? So you kind of have that entrepreneurial piece and then coordination saying someone has to make decisions on what happens when and how it does and firing coaches and all that stuff. 
And then I'm like, man, technology's dramatically changed on both of those fronts, especially now in the finance space with Web3 and you know, some of these DeFi protocols and even just, you know, TradFi. We are just getting more connected and more wired. And then obviously coordination around governance and just even social coordinates is materially improved. So I feel like traditional ownership will still remain because it still takes some irrational behavior. But I think as we start to see use cases of this play out, yeah, this is probably going to be at least, in my opinion, roughly one third of the ownership types that we see in the future. I don't think it's one of those things where it's going to take over all of it. But I think right now we're probably seeing on the order of, you know, call it sub 5%. And I think it's going to work its way up to about a third. What's your opinion of that take? Yeah, I would love it if it was as high as a third. Yeah, it's, as you're saying that, it's really interesting to see the evolution of sports from kind of team focused, moving to player focused, what's happened with media and the coverage, what's happened with as a brand and it permeating through lifestyle, which is what you start to see sports become a part of music, fashion, art, right? It's just been ubiquitous across any sort of cultural aspect of society. And the one thing that's remained relatively consistent is ownership. And you're starting to see this, all right, there's a new kind of fundraising, like remove the kind of governance and kind of contribution, access, anything like that aside, just purely from a financial perspective, you have a lot of means to circulate and raise capital like never before. And so I don't know if it's going to be a third. It's definitely going to be much higher. I'm going to obviously keep a close eye on this. It'd be interesting to see do things like horse racing lend itself more to collective ownership versus some of those elite leagues in the world, like the EPL, the NBA, NFL, and things like that. Who knows? But I agree with you. It's a very small percentage now, but I could see that changing. I think it's going to grow. Yeah, I hear you. I think we'll start to see it in these single sport, single athlete asset, especially where the leagues are really light in sort of mattering. So again, golf, boxing, tennis, horse racing, racing cars. Like Obviously, F1 is a whole big thing. NASCAR is a big thing. But I think... You know, I would imagine that, you know, Jeff Gordon versus Dale Earnhardt Jr. private, you know, race would actually do really, really well, partly because of the algorithmic media trend that we've talked about. So uh, I think that those types of asset classes certainly seem collectively investable for phase one. Putting a removing all SEC compliance for a second. I think individual athlete is important. It's not limited to sports that have single athlete participation, but also team sports as well. Like I'm thinking about the transfer portal and the mechanism to go on loan in European football or football around the world. Also, we just talked about NIL, right? Funding players in exchange for future returns, right? Is something like really interesting. Could you see ownership collectives and syndicates coming together to fund someone like Mikey Williams or Nazir Cunningham to finance their life and then in exchange get a future piece of their return? I don't know. Like what does a fully decentralized agency look like, right? We've talked about that at length. So I think, yeah, that it might be limited to single person, but I wouldn't necessarily mean that that means it's limited to sports that require single person participation. It could be team sports as well. So I think this just opens the floodgates. The question at the top of this entire thing was, do you think this is going to start a trend across sports and collective ownership? Yeah. And I think the answer is absolutely. To put a point on my comment, like you started your comment with a caveat of like, take all SEC concerns out of it. Mine was taking all SEC concerns in it, partly because of the battle with the leagues and, and some of the complexity there. But I agreed with you, like if we could go do this on Mars and just start from the ground up, Yes. Like, I think just because you're an individual on a team, does that matter? Like, not at all. And like, I actually, I read this interesting thing recently. They were talking about the idea of like interest on loans and they were, and I don't know how someone should fact check this for me, but they were saying like in the dark ages, they had a belief that they had lived like past the prime of humanity. So everything in the past was better and everything in the future is worse. So they look back at like the Greeks and the Romans and saying like that was the pinnacle of civilization. And now we are on the way out. So Armageddon, you know, like all this philosophy. And so the idea of loaning money out to entrepreneurs to go do something that was productive, that would pay you back a return because that person would succeed in that endeavor was a 
I don't want to say like a foreign concept. And I'm just probably isolate a little bit to the European kind of dark ages, at least this commentary, but that it was the assumption you wouldn't, why would you loan out your money out? Because the only thing is you're going to get worse, right? So the guy that's going to go start the new bakery and like, it's not going to work and you're just going to lose your money. And that's just sort of like the energy of the times. And so it's fascinating to think then like, obviously we live in a culture and a society where that's a 180. And now we have this expectation of getting returns in the future and all that stuff. And so that's a long winded way of saying like, I think any time that you see someone early that needs stuff now to succeed, to do that in the future, which is essentially an entrepreneur, like a hundred percent investable. So on Mars, yes, every athlete that is interested and sees a path to making something bigger and better, if they can get access to either media training, whatever it is now, hundred percent agree. Let's move to one of my favorite topics. I don't, I don't know if anyone knows this about me, but when I was like, like elementary, middle school, I think I dropped it in high school. Maybe I turn it on every once in a while and just check what's going on. The WWE though, I'm a, I'm kind of a low key WWE fan from back in the day. So I, I wanted to bring up this topic because I think it's really fascinating. So here's the headline. So legal betting on WWE matches test the boundaries of quote unquote sports betting. And I just think it's a fascinating conversation, partly because the WWE wants to legalize sports betting in states around the country. And it's a complicated issue because, and I hopefully I'm not surprising anyone out there, but the matches are scripted. And so that was a little fun story detour here is that that wasn't actually officially the case up until 1989. And so one of the things that the WWF and a lot of the professional wrestling leagues, they wanted to kind of exist somewhere in the like, this is super real, like not fake. And they would even beat up people who would interview them on TV that suggests that it was fake. And like, they wanted to kind of keep this whole ambiance that it was real. And then just like many things in this world, money came to, to the table and the state said, okay, cool. If this isn't scripted and this is real, then you need to be officially state-sanctioned fights, just like boxing and MMA. And so you need to now take fees and you have to do go through this all this process and pay us a bunch of money in order to have sanctioned fights. And the WWF was like, whoa, 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 hold on. We need an exemption from that because wrestling's fake. <laughs> and so now they were kind of caught in this catch-22. And so the, from that point on, it was sort of officially real or true that their wrestling was fake. And so now fast forward into the sports betting, a couple of states have actually allowed it. And I think it's really interesting because they've used this idea of what was called historical race wagering. And that is in the horse racing world where they'll actually strip out all the identification of a particular race. So I imagine, you know, they film, you know, have a database of 10,000 horse races. There's no dates, there's no locations, there's no nothing on the particular video. Everyone sits in and then like they get told, you know, okay, horse one, two, three, four, maybe you get a photo of it or something like that put your money in, they click play on that, you know, on that particular random video and it runs. And the, those states have decided that's effectively random enough, even though technically a handful of people would, would know who's going to win that race. It's random enough for the average uh, better that it's legal. The other uh, interesting exception is the Oscars. So the Oscars in some states allow people to bet on who's going to win the Oscar. Same situation, right? A handful of people know who's going to win an Oscar for X, Y, and Z category, and yet they still allow it. The last piece I'll say here is that in some states that it is legal, they cap it at $50. So I'm just curious, like, do you have a reaction on like generally the idea of allowing people to sports bet on the WWE? Like, does that feel like a, like a bad idea or a great idea? Yeah. So a few thoughts. One, I don't know if this is still the case, things that might've changed, but I know for a long time, I would think even if this changed, it would only be in the past couple of years, but if you're in Vegas, you cannot bet on UNLV basketball or any sort of professional sports team. And I think that's designed because you get access to players, they start throwing games and it's just a mess. I think this is actually a lot worse because obviously it is scripted. There's people out there that do know the outcomes and it's a lot easier to get in touch with the WWE intern than it is to the starting point guard of UNLV. So I just think it, it opens up the doors to some foul play. I actually really like the concept of keeping the amounts low for a few reasons. The Actually, the bulk of the revenue generated from games online, like daily fantasy sports and even a lot of sports books, comes from small bets. 
So I think that's a very interesting angle, cap it at 50 or hundred bucks, because I could say, Hey, I'm taking my son to the wrestling match tonight. Might as well have some fun, throw some money on it. There's no pressure, right? There's no pressure for any corruption because the amounts are so low. I think that's really interesting. Why not? I think anything above that, you start to get into some very dicey territory where either you're going to have the WWE script influenced by those kind of people, or you're just going to see just a lot of foul play and it's dangerous. I don't have a problem with the actual betting on it. Like prop bets are huge. I could see something like prop bets being more, does mankind lose by pin or TK? You know what I'm saying? I think that's interesting and fun, but there just has to be, because it is scripted, I just have to see some rules in place. It just seems too dicey of a situation to have an uncapped betting amount on something that's scripted where there's at least a handful of people that already know what the outcome is. Yeah. And I resonate with the WWE's intention here. To me, I feel like those are really reasonable ways to, to bring it into, into the, you know, the market. And it's, you know, it's fun and engaging to the audience. Like you said, you know, Hey, 20 bucks on who's going to win the Royal Rumble is like, why not? Like, it's just a, it's a fun, engaging thing. So kind of a complicated topic, but I really like some of the backstory there on, on kind of deciphering it. But one trend I just want to touch on with this is that, you know, we're definitely seeing, I, I kind of call it this, this kind of a simulated immersion. And the way I'm kind of thinking about that trend is like, you know, each club or each league or each sport, I guess, is sort of, they have this opportunity to be a little bit more like a digital 24 seven Disney world, rather than these just sort of, you know, these specific broadcasted events. And so what I really like about this trend is like, you know, WWE is able to start saying, okay, like, you know, we're building out this archive of content that you can watch at any time. You can start thinking and talking. Now you can imagine podcasts are going through the different bets and just that immersion into this world that is the WWE and using bets to kind of help facilitate either those narratives or those conversations. I just think it's, it's a trend that we're going to see. And we're going to see continued pushing of that into esports and, and, you know, simulated worlds entirely. And like, well, I think we're going to continue just to see this idea of gambling and wanting to bet and be immersed in these entire ecosystems 24 seven. And so I'm not surprised that that's the direction we're going. I think it would be wise for some states to you know continue to adopt it, but it's just an exciting trend for me. Should we talk trends? I've been teasing some trends here. I know you got a couple of trends here that you want to Ooh, highlight. We got a couple of trends coming up. Yeah. So this next one's interesting because we labeled some trends here and you and I had different ones and I'm excited to hear about yours. The TST officially kicks off next week. And for those that don't know what the TST is, it is the soccer tournament. It is from the same company that launched the TBT, the basketball tournament. It's a quick primer there. It's a wildly successful event that's happened. I think the first one was back in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. It is a winner-take-all tournament of professional and amateur players in basketball. So again, it's, I think it's regional. They have the championship in one location. You see a lot of overseas players. You see a lot of top D1 teams, alumni come back. Just by quick spot checking, I was looking through some of the rosters, especially on teams that I know. I would say roughly upwards of 80% have played professionally or currently play professionally. So it's a very legit competition. They're moving into other sports and this one is soccer. And what is really interesting about this, right? Same format, it's seven V seven, right? So it's less than your typical soccer matches, but it out of the gates is star studded. Wrexham is playing Ryan Reynolds team that he owns in Wales. They have a few premier league. One of them is West Ham. So I don't know if they're sending some of the U21 guys. I don't know if you're going to get all the starting backs and middies, but some representation from a premier league team will play in it. The women's national team, all-star alumni is in it. You're getting some like really big brands, really big star power, and they're playing in a winner take all championship for a million dollars in North Carolina next week. So I'm thrilled for a few different reasons, but what trend do you see emerging from here that you're excited about? One question before we do that, is seven on seven soccer fun to watch? Is it like the three on three of basketball where it's like kind of fun to watch, but like, you know, I think big three does a good job of like adding new rules to make it a little extra fun to watch. Do you happen to know? That's a really good question. So three on three to me, maybe it's because I know most about basketball compared to any other sport, but it just looks different. I wouldn't say that it, it's more exciting than, than five on five or less. In fact, I think at times I probably prefer five on five, but I know 
in rugby, the sevens is really exciting. I think it's a smaller field. There's less scrums because there's less people. It's more free running, I guess is how you could saw it, less stops. So that is known as the faster paced, more exciting version of rugby. I don't know how soccer translates. I think it would depend, do they play on the same size pitch? Are they heavier on offense than defense? I think that will depend on that, but I've actually never seen 7v7 soccer before. So to answer your question, I think it will depend on the format and the rules and some of the formations out there, because I think in some cases, less is better like rugby. And in some cases, when you're going full court 5v5, to me, that's a little bit more fun to watch. So I guess we can only tune in and check it out. Yeah, I think one thing I would just comment on here is that I think it's interesting too that these, assuming those teams are bringing their top talent, you know, the NBA and TBT have some, you know, it's, it's all these sort of washed up air quotes. Those guys are still pretty good, but, you know, alumni not playing professional type washed up here, you know, the Syracuse team, I think of, right. It's like, it's like they're good at basketball, but they're not NBA. Right. And so one of the things I do think this is really interesting. And I've always been curious of like, what would three on three at the NBA all-star game look like? Right. And if those guys tried, which I'm not sure they would try given the situation, but I'm imagining like a seven V seven, with some of these actually top tier talented people playing, that really gets me interested. Whereas if it's just like a logo on the site and then they're bringing in all this unknown talent and then they're playing a slightly different game that might not go like, then I think, and I picked the trend for this one as algorithmic media. And that's partly because I made that assumption that it was gonna be like TBT. And I think TBT like does great on this idea of algorithmic media. And I think you can build entire businesses in this new age of how sports clips are essentially shared, right? It's like, hey, I, I'm into basketball. TikTok knows that. And so if it gets a great highlight from TBT, the NBA, college basketball, it really doesn't matter. The algorithm doesn't care. It's going to show it to me. And then that can get me hooked and invested in like, what is this thing? Oh, there's a you know team from Wisconsin. I'm going to follow them or something like that. And you start to get hooked in the narrative. And, and now you might migrate your way to more traditional means of consuming the product or even you know checking out their stream directly or paying for it. And so when I read this and understood this, like my mind was like, well, if you're shortening up the people and you're basically squeezing out more highlights, that's going to show better on TikTok, which is a really unique distribution strategy. And I love that and kind of that's the direction. So I went with algorithmic media kind of on those assumptions and was excited about it. What trend did you pick for this one? So real quick before my trend, I agree. It's a good segue. I agree mostly, but I actually don't think it requires the top tier talent because you actually, so you can guarantee that West Ham is bringing their brand and I highly doubt starters from West Ham will be playing. It's probably U21, maybe U18 people from their farm system, right? But I still think that's awesome. I still think that's really compelling. And it's because of my trend, which is again, very bullish on this concept of disintermediation of sports. Like I always say, I think the reason why I'm such a big NBA fan and NFL fan is just because that was what was on TV when we were growing up. Right. And we saw this with all other media types, right? If you look at people where they get their news, there used to be one station. Now you go on YouTube, there's 1 billion places to go get your information. You can subdivide by industry. You can go by politics, left center, anywhere you could go. There's niches within niches on things to go on the internet. And I actually think that's a great thing. It comes with its downsides for sure. But I think having that is really just, it's a compelling way to view the future of sports. And I think this is the start. So TBT started, you have to look at the trajectory and not necessarily the snapshot, right? So it started out with guys like, what is this thing? Sure, I guess there's a cash prize, but the talent that has come into the TBT year over year has dramatically increased. Their sponsorships have increased. It's only a matter of time before their prize pool increased. In fact, I think last year was the first year that they actually upped the total amount. So fast forward five, six years, that prize pool gets to five, six, 10 million for the winning team. I can guarantee you're gonna get some really top-notch players come out of the woodwork to participate in this. I don't see why that would be any different for TST. So <laughs> I think that is really interesting. So using again, West Ham as an example, this year, yes, they're going to send some U18 guys for sure. But when that prize pool hits five, six million, right? Premier League is either winding down or, or done, if I'm not mistaken. Why not send some guys over there and try to win it? I've even heard of some of the TBD players saying if they win, they would give their 
winnings to charity, right? So these guys are either maybe D league guys or things like that, right? I don't know. I think it's I think it's interesting taking the concept of soccer, slightly changing the rules, slight remix there, sampling from the NCAA tournament, right, and taking that playoff style winner take all type thing. I love that people are experimenting with this type of stuff. I just, I absolutely love it because before we've seen leagues or, or kind of one-off events like that, try too closely to directly compete with the incumbents. And you just can't do that, right? If you want to have a shot, even to take a sliver of market share from international football, European football, you have to come with a new angle. And I think this is it. So I'm just really interested to see how it evolves. I'm really interested to see what kind of talent continues to come in. They've shown progress with TBT. I'm not surprised they're doing TST. So I'm excited in general. Yeah, I buy all that. And I, I think your point around kind of how to go about disruption is you got to change something. You have to change one key variable. Completely agree. Let's talk dot swoosh. So dot swoosh for those that aren't familiar is Nike's NFT marketplace. Quick backstory, they acquired a company called Artifact around 18 months ago. Artifact was this digital clothing NFT brand. I think one of their first big drops, especially one that kind of put them on the map was around sneakers. Nike just scooped them up. Interestingly enough, I see Nike doesn't make too many acquisitions. I wanna say this was like their fourth one in the past decade or so. So it was a big deal. It was like their big step into digital goods, if you will. And they haven't really slowed down. I remember they did a job, I think a mint list to even get access to the platform. They recently did a really cool NFT sneaker drop. They, I think they had two selections. It was like new wave or retro, really low price point. I think it was around $19, which is interesting. I think what I'm seeing is that the company isn't just selling digital sneakers. It's like starting to really cultivate a good community that want to interact with the brand in new and exciting ways. Right. And so I think like they're totally removing all language around NFTs, crypto, and just leaning into this very digital good marketplace. And like I said, with the low price point of $19, it's clear that they've prioritized community involvement and really looking for innovative ways to basically sell to their community without having them watch ads or using influencers or all these like very traditional ways of marketing. My question is this trend, right? You and I both agree this technology integration in sports, in apparel is amazing. I think it's something that we've been bullish on for a long time. So Nike is obviously the huge thousand pound gorilla in the room, right? Especially in the sports space. So is this the start of this kind of cascading effect to bring Web3 to the masses, particularly in sports? Like it's still somewhat flying under the radar, but between their rebrand around the nomenclature and what they're calling it and the success and exclusivity and digital goods. Is this it? Is this the turning point we've been waiting for? What are your thoughts? Uh, I think probably not, unfortunately. One of the biggest things that I've been struggling with, with digital wearables and that kind of whole ecosystem is I think there's a really great article. I think it's Eugene Way. It's called Status as a Service. And it's a fascinating kind of perspective or hypothesis on thinking about how humans interact with like social networks and, and all these things. And I really kind of think about that article when I assess what they're doing in that space. And I think one of the things that we're sort of lacking right now is this area to sort of flex, for lack of a better word, on people to drive status by having that in ways that are very reactive rather than proactive. And what I mean by that is walking to someone's house and in their entryway, a Van Gogh being hung up in the hallway is like a very reactive kind of structure of like, oh yeah, there's like a painting and it's a Van Gogh. And like, now you know that I have a Van Gogh. And of course that painting could be kept in a private, you know, storage locker somewhere, a temperature control it could be in your bedroom. It could be somewhere that most people aren't gonna see it. And the owner of that painting like intentionally puts it there for a very particular and probably a status seeking reason. They say, I want to put it there so everyone sees it. But it's also like a very plausible deniability to be like, I don't know, I just like, I hung up art in my hallway. Like, it's not like I'm not being pretentious by putting it there, right? And I think of places like Zoom, and I don't think this is the right application. I think Fortnite is probably actually the closest ecosystem we've ever seen to like digital wearables and emotes like mattering. 
And I think flexing in that ecosystem. So like if Nike could take that concept and do a deal with Fortnite or like kind of the next type of Fortnite, maybe. But I, until we have like a Zoom style space or like this thing where you can kind of flex it without it being too obvious. And even Zoom, like I'm sure you've seen a couple of these people where they'll sit and then like right over here is like their college diploma. And you can just tell like, oh, like you're really fucking proud that your college diploma is right there on the wall. It's very intentionally placed, which is still too cheesy, right? So even being in a Zoom intentionally is not great with where we're at in this. So I would say my whole point is like, I love where they're at in terms of strategy, like what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it. But I feel like until you have the opposite side of like, okay, now I have it and sort of where and how do I express it? It's a really kind of product market fit problem. Okay, that's interesting. So you're thinking they're doing what they're supposed to do as far as launch, as far as strategy, both business and kind of growth product, all that. You're giving them a decent enough grade there. You're saying the spots that still need to be filled are the arena to which you can showcase your your NFTs or your digital goods. I'm even thinking like a very one-to-one example, right? It's like shoe collectors or sneaker heads, right? It's like that first day of school when you show up with the Ben and Jerry dunks or something like that, like you need an arena to showcase and flex. And I, you brought up status as a service. Totally. That's just the behavior. I think the part that is being underestimated a little bit is that they are what well, actually I, I take that back. I, I think I agree with you 100%. It's like, they're not, they're doing what they're supposed to do, but I think it's in the anticipation that something like that will happen which I don't think it's necessarily Nike's fault. But the question was, is this the thing to bring it to the masses? And I think what you're saying, and I agree with is not really, because there's no application to this yet. You can put these in Fortnite, or you can put these in some showcase. You use Zoom. I think there's even like more, I think GatherTown, for example, right? Like company meeting place that's more like 8-bit, right? Having those on there is the catalyst, right? Because then people will see, how did you get those, right? And then it becomes more like analog world. How did you get those? I need to get on the wait list for swoosh. I need to go buy this. Oh, you have a rare kind. I need to go get my rare kind. I think that's what really accelerates it. So I agree. It actually flipped me because I was like, yeah, this. I think this is it. It's like they've adopted. They've done multiple releases. It's Nike. Like the artwork is crazy, but... The catalyst that's really going to accelerate all this is the application and the arena to showcase what you have versus acquiring. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And like you said, if I'm Nike, it's a good investment. Like like if I were the CEO of Nike and I was looking at my you know budget, be like, is this worth 2% of you know my, my annual revenue to sort of invest in sort of an R&D infrastructure play to see if we can, can you know, capitalize on this and something that could be detrimental sure. to the business. Yeah. yeah. Like, so I'm, I'm writing the check, I'm putting a team on it. I'm holding them to high expectations and, you know, we're doing our thing. And I think that's what we're watching as like an outsider. I'd be like, eh, like, is that the thing that tips it over? No. But to your point, like if the next Fortnite comes out and it's web three enabled, or it even just does a deal with Nike to go use this, you know, Reebok, Adidas, everyone else, you know, they're left in the dust. So, but you can burn a fortune chasing that. So it's all about timing, but yeah, it's, it's a complicated yes. And no, that's valid. That's absolutely valid. Valid. So the kids are saying, yep. just like my draft picks that we're about to, to Ooh, jump into. Okay, let's get to it, dude. All right, so that's enough Brainiac stuff for today. My head hurts. <laughs> At least one-sided Brainiac stuff, yeah. Well, coming from the dog, I think Frank had the best opinions today. Frank's passed out, dude. Passed out. <sighs> I'm, je- I'm All jealous. right. So what's the format here? If I pick five, you pick five, or I pick three? Let's explain it. Let's explain it to the squad. Okay. So we recently had the NBA lottery. So this got me thinking the biggest draft bus of all time. And trust me, there's plenty, right? Just like any other draft, you take one, it eliminates them from my pool. We're going to bounce back and forth. And at the end, we got to be honest, we have to give a winner out of you and I who had the biggest draft bus between the two of us, who's got the best roster of NBA picks that just fizzled out. I'll let you go first because you got your GM with you. So you go first. All right. This is a a personal favorite right here. I'm going to get a little close to the mic here. I'm going to go Darko Milicic. Darko Milicic. Detroit Pistons. Detroit basketball. Okay, That's a good one. That's a good one. He was certainly on my list. So let me go ahead and cross that off. I didn't take him as high as you did. So go ahead. 
my number one is still on the board. I just want to highlight my big reason why here. He was selected before Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne <laughs> oh, Wade, God. Chris Bosh. You, you, you know, the GM couldn't have picked a worse pick at that spot. I mean, it is literally, he's the lone exception in that draft and he just, he just missed, he missed every direction he turned. So it was not only a bust, but like, imagine Detroit drafted Carmel. Like Detroit was still pretty good. You know, like they were like, they were about to be really good. I guess it's probably a better way of saying it, but dude, add Wade, Bosch or Melo to one of those teams. Dude, they would have had no problem with the Spurs in those finals. So that's my biggest thing. Let's hear your number I one I agree. Pick. It's certainly a solid pick, especially with everyone on the board. They could have just pulled something out of a hat and probably done better than Darko. I wonder what Darko's doing right now. I should look him up. I am almost guaranteed you Darko is living that life right Way. now. I always, I feel like we do all this stuff and we're like, oh man, they're just miserable. And it's like, no, dude, he's killing. He's back in Europe. He's the man. He got paid, dude. Darko, if you're listening, I want to hang out, dude. I, I have a feeling that even though I picked you number one, I'm sorry. It's just a basketball thing. But, dude, I want to hang out. I think you're probably having a good No, he's probably, yeah, he's probably fishing. You think, I wonder if he still hoops. That's probably not. He's probably burnt out. He doesn't <laughs> want to be known as the biggest draft buck. Or he's hooping all the time. People are like, hey, you're pretty good. And he's like, I was second overall pick. <laughs> yeah, and super I, pissed. He was like a 40-year-old. Yeah. like, who went after you? He's like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> you probably wouldn't recognize the <laughs> You probably. Yeah, sandwiched in between LeBron and Melo. Tough. I'm going to this. This is less about his play, more about just being the guy that got selected over Michael Jordan. I got to go Sam Bowie. I got to go Sam Bowie. Hakeem, number one. Makes sense. What are you going to do? That's what a great call. And then Jordan obviously going at three to the Bulls. But the Blazers going with Sam Bowie, that just stings. You are forever known as the guy that got drafted over Michael Jordan. That's just tough. But my guy LeBron <laughs> went number one. No one ahead of him, of course. Oh, true. So it's like there's not a, a name you can do in that draft. Darko's obviously the closest one being sandwiched in between him and Melo. Dude, Sam Bowie, that guy is just, anytime his name gets brought, oh, you're the guy that the Blazers selected instead of Michael Jordan. That is his legacy. That's just, he's my number one. He's my number one pick. Okay, round two. And I like that, but icing on the cake is that Portland lost a coin toss for the first pick. So similar to that Ooh. point, like they could have easily been the third pick. They easily could have been Ooh. the first pick. Double whammy on that. Double so, whammy. Decent pick on that. Yeah. I hate to do this one for my second pick because I honestly, I love the guy. And in college, I was a big fan of his and I thought he was going to be amazing. And I thought the team he got picked to. So I feel really bad saying it this because I'm a huge fan of him. But Greg Oden to the Trailblazers ahead of Kevin Durant. Like, and I just love Brandon Roy and he had the same you know, injuries and stuff. So it, it just pains me to even just say this, but Greg Oden, man, I thought he was be the next, maybe not the next Patrick Ewing, but like, I thought he had a shot to be the next Patrick Ewing. I loved his game. I love the nickname uh, Old LeBron. So somebody said he looked like the granddad version of LeBron in that Nike commercial. Dude. He's like the reverse Thon Maker. <laughs> <laughs> the Benjamin Button of Thon Maker. <laughs> the Benjamin Button oh, Maker. Thon <laughs> Maker as Benjamin Button. <laughs> I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that. No, that's good. I left him off the list completely because just a bummer. Like injuries are it's tough, so, but yeah, yeah, like technically a bust. That squad was loaded yeah. if they could all have stayed healthy. My number two pick, dude, Anthony Bennett. What's going on, man? Watched the guy play a few times at UNLV. I was on board with him going number one overall. The dude was a beast. Mm -hmm. He could do it all. I don't think I can remember a fast decline as... Anthony Bennett. Like that dude started no. struggling in summer league before the season even started. Yeah. And then I just can't believe how fast he was just not on a roster anymore. Wiseman comes close to my mind of being one of those top picks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was pretty moved on from pretty fast and they kept dropping him in G League and being like there was injuries and like all that stuff. But but no, Bennett, great pick. All right. I'm gonna go Adam Morrison. The Charlotte Bobcats. I hate to say this, but I had him player of the year over JJ Redick. I just thought JJ's game was not going to pan out in the NBA. And -wee, was I wrong in that one? JJ obviously had a fantastic career. Could have played another few more years if he felt like it. But Adam Morrison, 
I don't I don't feel like Adam's Adam maybe Adam is having a great time. I don't I don't know. I feel opposite if I did on Darko, but uh, Oh Adam's sad for tough, sure. Dude. Tough Come career. on. Adam's Adam was yeah, sad when I, he was player of the year candidate. <laughs> so what do you think he's doing now? Dude, Adam's a sad guy. Yeah. And selected before Brandon Roy, Rudy Gay, Rajon Rondo. But man, he had a great, great career at Gonzaga and it just it didn't work out. But Adam Morrison, shout out to, to Yeah, Adam. I'm going with the hometown can't even call him hometown hero, whatever the opposite of that is, but your boy Kwame Brown. Ah, uh, man, that guy, he's, he ended up having a long enough career. You know, he popped up yeah, on the Lakers and, and things like that. So it was that, but just the excitement, people were saying like, oh, he's the next KG. I actually saw him play live in high school, which was pretty cool. Definitely looked like a beast. Just as soon as he hit the NBA, man, he just struggled. It seemed like he wasn't really... Didn't have good footwork around the basket. Wasn't that athletic. Was labeled as being really soft. And just fizzled out. Just didn't quite pan out. Certainly didn't live up to the hype of a number one overall pick. Yeah, uh, I feel that. I'm going to go next with Robert Tractor Trailer, Milwaukee Bucks. Sixth overall pick. For people who don't know, he was actually drafted by the Dallas Mavericks. And then on draft day, he was traded for who turned out to be Dirk Nowitzki. So it's just devastating to think that the Bucks could have had Durka, one of the greatest of all time. Probably a championship with Durka, I'm presuming. Maybe, maybe not. But man, and and Tractor Trailer did not last long. Mm -hmm. In RIP to him, actually, he passed away in 2011 at only 34 years old. But yeah, unfortunately, Tractor Trailer, it says his career high in points was was 22 in in his journey. And it says Dirk averaged 22 in his entire career. Wow, yeah, yeah. that says it all. Okay, my next pick, fourth round. I'm going with a guy that I thought had, dare I say, Hakeem-type potential. Put on some weight, give him Shaq-type potential. Those are ceiling comparisons, of course, but Hashim the Beat. I don't know if you got he The Beat. Dude, UConn, the dude was unstoppable. He was a beast. He was blocking shots. He was dunking on everybody. The Big East could not contain him. At the time, he was the highest overall pick to end up in the G League at number two overall. I had high hopes for this guy. Good dude. I saw a bunch of interviews with him. Just didn't work, man. Got drafted number two overall to yeah, the uh, love that pick to the Grizzlies. Never quite panned. I was a big fan of Hashim to beat. I thought he was going to be great as well. I don't know if I did the Hakeem ceiling, but like excellent, excellent starting center for sure. Probably all star type number. I'm going to go Joe Alexander. This is a homer pick. Milwaukee Bucks it took him eighth overall. Uh, I feel like he had one great tournament with West Virginia. He was a six eight guy that could jump out of the gym, shoot some threes. He was drafted, but he was selected before Brooke Lopez, Roy Hibbert, who was a beast there for a while, Serge Ibaka, Nicholas Batum. Just as a Bucks fan, this one is just like one that's like imprinted in my mind. That's a good one. That's a good one. Saw him play a few times at WVU. Had high hopes. Didn't quite make it. My last pick, I'm going to go with also a number one overall, Michael Olawakandi. I remember watching the draft live. He was announced. My dad and I looked at each other. Who? <laughs> the candy man dude, the candy man Olawa candy i was just like i was too young to follow draft boards and things like that but i remember him going number one overall and i was like who is this guy just i think clippers took him number one overall just never dude the guy was just radio silent i think he had a decent rookie year and then slowly fizzled out so i'm gonna finish my draft with that Nice callback, by the way, to the University of Pacific, which was the earlier shout out to the March Madness squad in our EA Sports NIL thing. Mm. The whole episode has come, come full, full circle. circle. Well now. done, sir. Well done, sir. That's that's what you do here. All right, cool. So let's Frank. do it. I had, let's see, I had Sam Bowie, Anthony Bennett, Kwame, Ashim Thabit, and the Candyman, Oliver Candy. I had Darko, Greg Odin, Adam Morrison tractor trailer and joe alexander my bums are definitely beating your bums yeah for sure Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think you have a better classic list it sounds like you had darko i I would say how about this i think you win but i want some props for my darko pick 
at number one. So I had Darko at three. So you took him off my board. So he was up there for me. It's a good pick. Okay. One thing I'll give you credit for was I forgot how loaded the rest of the draft was. <laughs> right. I remember Wade. I remember Bosch. But I think you you named a few more, and I totally forgot about like how bad they messed up in selecting Darko. Mm -hmm. They could have gone mm -hmm. any direction, and they would have been fine. But I, I do. I'll give you credit for that because I, I put him third because I'm just I'm thinking Melo maybe D Wade, but the draft class was loaded, and I overlooked that. It's all right. You win though. You win the first one, sir. Well done. Salute. All right, guys. Thank you for checking out. The new and improved season two of the Krause House podcast. These locks will be coming back next episode. The GM, aka Frank, will be coming back next episode. Commodore, any last words for the GM? Yeah, I was going to say, there? let us know what you think of the feedback or any you know topic ideas or stuff too. Like We want to change it to be a little bit less on the kind of Dow governance focus and a little bit more into the business of sports, which I think is what attracted a lot of our Jerry's into the community. So if you guys have thoughts or suggestions on topics or kind of segments or something like that, let us know. We're hoping to hear them. Later, Jerry's. Wagbat.